All right, well, good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we'll be this morning. But before we start, we'll finish the hearing and keeping part of Revelation 20, 1 through 15. And um, this is the second to the last class. So Lord willing, today we'll do chapter 21, and then it'll be chapter 22, and we'll be done. If you remember last week in Revelation 20, we talked about Satan being bound, Satan being cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. In verse 10, there's that section in Revelation 24 through 6 where the saints reign with Christ. It says they reign for a thousand years and all of that. But what we want to do now before we read Revelation 21 is just to get the hearing and keeping part of Revelation 20, 1 through 15. So what's the practical things we learned from that chapter that affect the way we live today? Here's the first one. The devil is seized and not sovereign. So it says that the devil's been bound with the chain. John says that in Revelation 20. And I just think it's helpful for us to appreciate the devil is seized and not sovereign. He's not omnipotent. He's not this awesome, powerful, unstoppable force. Instead, the Bible says that he's a foe that has already been trampled and will ultimately be trampled at the end of time. Paul told the Romans in Romans 16, 20, my God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And I think when we view Satan from the way that he's portrayed in the book of Revelation as an already wounded and defeated foe, it just changes our spiritual tactics and how we engage in spiritual warfare. If we feel as if, some, and sometimes Christians even say this, I've heard people say, Satan may win the battle, but he'll lose the what? But God doesn't lose any battles. That would be impossible. It's not like Satan's getting little victories and then God will get the big victory. God wins all the battles and all the wars. And so it might be more helpful to say Satan may get a few licks in. But in the end, God wins all the battles and all the wars. Satan is seized and not sovereign. Number two, only those who undergo the first resurrection will enjoy the second. So John says in Revelation 20, 4 through 6, that those, especially verse 6, blessed, are, blessed and holy are those that take part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, and they'll be priests with God and Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. There's a lot of talk in commentaries and in Bible classes about what that resurrection is. But there's a first resurrection that everybody has to undergo, and that is when you're baptized. Romans 6, 3 through 5, Paul says, we're buried with him in baptism, and we raise, we're raised with him through faith, and then we go to walk in newness of life. If we don't enjoy that resurrection, if we're not buried in baptism and rise to walk in newness of life, we won't enjoy the second re resurrection, which is in 1 Corinthians 15. And so Romans 6, 3 through 5 is the first resurrection that everybody must undergo if we would peacefully enjoy the second one. The second thing is we're royal in God's eyes. It said that we're priests and we reign with Christ. And we do need to see ourselves as those that are princes and princesses in the kingdom and not peasants and paupers from God's perspective. And the way John presents Christians in the book of Revelation is God reigns, Christ reigns. But there's also a sense in which we as Christians reign with him. And that's important. That's in Revelation 20. All those with Gog and Magog will be defeated. Does anybody remember what we said about Gog and Magog? I believe that's Revelation 20 and verse 8. How did we define or describe him? Anybody remember? It's not a literal group of people. They start in Genesis. You see him again in Ezekiel. But how did we say John was using those two nations in the book of Revelation? Enemies of God. Anybody who's an enemy of God, anybody who aligns with the opposition. And in the end, they'll all be defeated. Any philosophy, ideology, or group of people or system that becomes Gog and Magog against God's people and his, his will and his scheme will ultimately be defeated. Live so you'll be ready to stand before the throne. John says he saw a great white throne 
and the day we're standing before that throne, we all will one day live so that you'll be ready to do that. And then here's the last thing, avoid the lake of fire. Revelation 20 and verse 15, John says, whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And the reality is people are going there. If the Bible's right, most of the people who have ever lived will end up there. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. But we can live in such a way that it won't be true about us. We can avoid the lake of eternal fire. And we should use every fiber within our being, every known spiritual resource, to make sure that we avoid that place. Because heaven has bankrupted itself in sending Jesus to earth so that we won't go there. So against all of God's love, compassion, and mercy, we have to fight past all of that. You think about all of the things that God has put in our place to barricade us from that fire. All of the things we've got to run through and climb over to get there. And sadly, some people will, but we should do everything we can to avoid it. All right, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, I'm titling this chapter, The New World and the Triumphant Church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a beloved chapter for many reasons. A lot of people love Revelation 21 because of what it teaches us about victory, about triumph, and about joy. Um, it's included in this book, and for good reason, that includes a lot of persecution, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of difficulty. Then you get to Revelation 21, which is really one of the bright spots of the book. What I want to do before we get into Revelation 21, and I'll do these quickly, but I think it's important to just cover some things that help us to contextualize Revelation 21 so we handle the chapter responsibly and do what John says. And so just stick with me through this first part so you don't look at me crazy when we get into Revelation. You probably still will, some of you, but so that you don't look as crazy when we get into Revelation 21. Let me just say a few things about how to properly handle and read Revelation 21. Here's the first, and we've said this a lot. It's extremely important in this chapter. Remember the context of the book and especially chapter 21. What's the context of the book of Revelation? When did many of these things take place? When? In what century? The first century. John says many of the things he's writing about will come to pass when? Soon. That's still true in Revelation 21, by the way. So just appreciate the context of what John's saying and don't fast forward, John, unless John fast forwards himself. Just stick with the context of the book and let John do his own speaking. Here's the second thing. We said this the very first class. If there's ever an image or description in the book of Revelation and John says, here's what I'm saying, then it's whatever John says it is. Even if I read it and I say, that can't be what I think it is. If that's what John says it is, these are the true sayings of God, Revelation 19, 9. And whatever John says it is, whatever an angel says, hey, this is an image, John. And by the way, this image represents X. If they say that's what X is, what is it? Whatever they say, even if you don't like it, even if you don't think that's what it means, you've got to trust God. Follow the evidence. Just listen to what John's saying. Here's the next one. I, I read a book by a man named Abraham Heschel. He's not a Christian. He was a Jewish rabbi. He died a few years ago. But he wrote a book on the prophets I had to read for a seminar one time. And in the beginning of the book, he had this quote about reading the prophets. But I think it's true about all Bible studies. He says, when you read the Bible, know what you see, but don't see what you know. His point was, when you approach a text, read the Bible. Know what's in there, know what you see, but don't see what you know. What does that mean? It means see exactly what the text is saying, but don't bring any baggage with you and know what you see. It's, well, I already know what this chapter is about. It happens to people all the time. You ever wonder why you say, well, how can people read the Bible all the time and they can't see that you've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? It's because they see what they know. They think we're saved by faith alone. That's all there is to it. And that can't be what that passage is saying because 
I've already got some ideas about what this means, and so it can't be that. When you read Revelation 21, know what you see. Know exactly what John's saying. But don't see what you know. Don't think, well, I've always heard this explained this way. It has to be whatever we think it is. Let's just make sure we stay consistent with John. Handle properly the word of truth. I should have asked a question before I posted this, but I'll leave it up there. What's the greatest tool to help us in understanding the book of Revelation? Knowledge of the what? And that's especially true in chapter 21. John's alluded to and referenced the Old Testament throughout, but in Revelation 21, John's going to dip into Exodus, 1 Kings, Leviticus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and bring up all of these different ideas to bring home this message to us and help us to appreciate it. Revelation 21, in the end, I believe, is a picture of the triumphant church of Jesus Christ. After the persecution from the Romans, and the devil's been cast away, the beast has been thrown into the lake of fire, so has the false prophet. I believe what John describes in Revelation 21 is actually a picture of the church triumphant, and he uses various symbols and imagery to tell it. So you're going to read in Revelation 21, and when John wants to describe the beauty of the church's relationship to Jesus, he'll say she's a bride. But when he wants to talk about the security that we now have in the church, he'll say, I saw a temple. And if he wants to talk about the idea that there's an invitation for everybody to enter it, he'll say the gates were open. But I believe Revelation 21 primarily is about the church triumphant and about Jesus Christ. And I know we sing a lot of songs about heaven and a lot of our imagery comes from there. I'm just not sure that's what John means. But let's read Revelation 21 together and then we'll walk through it chapter by chapter. If you have any questions, if something comes up today and you're like, I don't know, but what about this? Just raise your hand and we can work through those things together. We'll start with the first four verses and then we'll get into our, our text here. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be, their, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All right. So the first thing we see in Revelation 21 is John says he saw a what? Revelation 21:1. New heavens and a new earth. Now, if you write in your Bible, you might want to draw an arrow back up to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. What did John say happened to the first heaven and first earth in Revelation 20:11? What was it? It fled away. It fled away. The first heaven and first earth passed away, and so John says he saw a new one. In the Bible, whenever God wants to talk about a society or a group of people, and he talks about punishing them and destroying them, he says their heaven and their earth passed away. It doesn't mean the whole world went away. It just means their reign. And I've got some passages up here, and we may read some as we have time, but I just want to show you this language isn't new, that the whole earth was passed away. John's not talking about the literal earth. In Revelation 20 and verse 11, when John says, I saw the heavens and the earth fled away from this one that was on the throne, he's not talking literally about the annihilation and destruction of the world in that passage. Though 2 Peter 3 does say one day the earth will be on fire. But in that passage, he's saying the earth for the Romans, their reign is destroyed. And so it's just natural that a new heaven and a new earth exists now. This is a new place where God's people are going to dwell because... There's no longer any more Roman opposition. So Isaiah 13 is a passage where this happens. He says it about Edom in Isaiah 34, 3 through 7. All of those Old Testament passages talk about people's world being turned upside down. 
God removing the land and the world from where it stands. And here, Rome's world has been destroyed in chapter 20. It's been judged as unrighteous. And so it just makes sense. The next thing John sees would be a new heaven and a new earth. Question, in verse 1, what does a new heaven and new earth here refer to? What do you think it refers to here? I kind of just told you. I kind of cheated a minute ago and told you. What do you think? If, if the first heaven and first earth was the Roman persecution, emperor worship, Satan, and all of that, if that's been taken out of the way, cast into the lake of fire, what does John mean here when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth? What is that about? Church. What was that? Church, triumphal? Uh, not yet. Not just yet. Nobody's going to say anything now. Y'all like, I don't know, man. Don't tell me. I don't know. We don't know. Turned upside down. We don't know. Whatever. Okay, so this phrase, new heavens and new earth, that's what that acronym is, N-H-N-E, new heavens, new earth, right? It appears throughout the Bible. Let's just look at a few. Go to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 and verse 17 is the first time this phrase appears together. I won't be able to go to all the Old Testament passages I'm going to reference, but I'm going to keep a bunch of them up here as we go through, just so you can see John's just basically dipping back into his Old Testament bag and saying, hey, you know these passages, here's what this reference is. So in Isaiah 65, Isaiah says, hey, one day a new covenant's coming with Jesus Christ, and there's going to be some great things that happen. That's primarily what the last half of the book of Isaiah is about. And in Isaiah 65 and verse 17, notice he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create, create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Isaiah says, one day a new heaven and new earth is coming. When Jesus came, question, was there a literal new world? Everybody go this way. What was different about it? New environment, new circumstances, new standing. Look at Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66 and verse 22. This also is about the new covenant age of Jesus. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make will remain before me, says the Lord, so your offspring and your name will remain. Same thing. Isaiah says in the new covenant age, God's going to create a new heavens and new earth. And then the other time that phrase appears is in 2 Peter 3, 13. And I believe there is talking about the new world, eternal life with God in heaven. And Peter says, Behold, we await his promise, the new heavens and the new earth. But in Revelation 21, 1, what John's talking about is a new arrangement, a new environment. Now that the Romans have been put down and taken out of the way, there's a quote-unquote new world where the Christians can live and get on with their business. Notice what John says in Revelation 21, 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and earth that passed away, and there was no more what? Why highlight that? Out of all the things John could bring up, why say there was no more sea? Where did the beast come from in Revelation 13:1? Out of the sea. John's saying that opposition has been gone away. John's not saying, hey, in heaven there won't be any water or anything like that. This isn't about that. This isn't about the end of the world. This is about the end of Rome's world and the Christians being under Rome's thumb. And so John says, I saw no more sea. In the book of Revelation, the sea either stands for separation between humanity and God or the opposition that they're facing from the sea beast. Now that the sea beast has been cast into the lake of fire and the devil, John says we've got a whole new world, a whole new arrangement. Things are great for us as the people of God. And then he says he saw a holy city coming down out of heaven. Um, what did John see in verse 2? A holy city, the what? What does the rest of the verse say? What do you have? New Jerusalem and? Everybody. What else? 
He uses several terms. Let's walk through them. Verse 2. We'll pick up speed after this. I've got 27 verses to go. Holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And then what's the third thing he says? A bride adorned for her husband. Okay, so holy city, New Jerusalem, whatever that means. We'll get to that later. And then what else did John say? What's the last one? And what is the bride? Everybody, what's the bride? The church. The church. John says he saw the church. Notice John doesn't say, hey, I saw people going to heaven. He says, I saw the church coming down out of heaven. In the book of Revelation, things from heaven, out of heaven, in association with heaven, all signify these things come from God. The world's been wrenched. No more wrong. And now he's saying, hey, there's a new environment, and God's going to plant his church, the holy city, his bride, in this new habitation. You don't have to worry about the Romans anymore. Everything's taken care of. Everything's cleaned up. He says, I saw a new bride. Earlier, John mentioned this. Go back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and notice verse 7. This is where John starts talking about this wedding that now is happening in Revelation 21. Now we're reading about it. In verse 7, he says, let us rejoice and exult and give God glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. And then verse 9, uh, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. In Revelation 19, the bride's getting dressed, but she can't come out until we get the enemies out of the way. That's chapter 20. Now that they're gone, the bride's ready. And John says, I saw this bride coming down out of heaven, the holy church, the Jerusalem, which is from above. And so John sees the purified church coming down to live in this new environment, and she won't be threatened. Verse 3 of Revelation 21, John says that what's going to happen now is I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. What is meant by God is going to dwell with these people and be their God? What does that mean? What do you think that means? God's going to dwell with his people, the church, that's in verse 2, and he's going to be their God. What is John trying to say? We're going to have what with God? What's the church going to have with God? We already have it, but what? Russell? Commune with God and enjoy fellowship with God. And these passages, Leviticus 26, 12, and Ezekiel 36, 28, they say the same thing in the Old Testament. God will say about his people, I myself will be their God, and they will be my people. And so John's saying, you're going to be close to God. That's going to happen in heaven in eternity for sure, but it's happening right now. And for these Christians, it was happening when Rome was destroyed. Let me show you a New Testament passage that says the same thing. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, and notice verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And what's the last part? I will be their God, they will be my people. John says the same thing. Same idea. This idea of fellowship with God is going to be enhanced and enjoyed now that the opposition has been taken out of the way. And that's exactly what John sees in Revelation 21. All right, last verse in this section before we move on. Verse 4, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So if this isn't the end of, end of the world, John says, I saw a new environment, right? What's coming out of heaven? What did John see, everybody? The church. <clears throat> fellowshipping with God in verse 3. Question, 
What is John talking about now in verse 4? What do you think? This is a trick question. Not really, but it is a trick question. What is John talking about now? I would, you would think John's talking about heaven. Show of hands for heaven. Whose vote is heaven? Okay, but we, I would be asking, why would John change all of a sudden? So far, John's been talking about what? The church, and I think he still is. Some, I knew I would get funny looks. I'm getting them now. But here's the thing. So somebody says, now, wait a minute, Kyron. You can't. This has got to be heaven. No more death, right? No more crying. No more mourning. Question. Two reasons why this isn't heaven. The first, John doesn't say it is. John never said it. In this whole chapter, he doesn't say any of it's heaven. But here's the second thing. How has John been communicating so far for 20 chapters? Literally or symbolically? Why do we change John now and say, well, that's got to be literal death, literal mourning, and no more death, no more crime, literally. What if there are Old Testament passages that say in the New Covenant age, it'll be so good, it'll be as if we never die, we never cry, and we never mourn? Because there are, and those are the passages John's referring to here. Go to Isaiah. Go with me to a few passages in Isaiah. We don't have time to look at all of them, but John is not talking about heaven here. John's saying with no more Rome, there'll be no more martyrs and no more killing. There'll be no more crime in the sense, no more weeping over what happens to us with Roman persecution. And John's saying, because of that, we won't have any more trouble. Look at Isaiah 25. And there's a lot of these, but I'll just look at a few in Isaiah, and then we'll move on. Isaiah 25, notice verses 5 through 9. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners. As the heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, you will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well and refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Now that's in the new covenant age. Isaiah is not talking about the end of the world. He'll swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people will take, be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You can write Jesus in the mark in the verse 9 because that's who Isaiah is talking about. What does he say? No more crying, no more death, no more mourning. In the grand scheme of things, we don't have any reason to because of what God's done for us in Christ. Look at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 and notice verse number 9 and 10. You can read all of Isaiah 35 and see some of what happens in the New Testament. But Isaiah 35 and verse 9 says, There will be a time when no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Same idea. Throughout Isaiah's prophecy, he's looking forward to a new covenant age, and he gives these amazing glimpses of hope, and he's saying, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning. When you get to Revelation 21, John says that time's arrived. One more from Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, we saw this a moment ago about John saying he saw a new heaven and a new earth. But after John says that, look at Isaiah 65 and notice verse 19 and verse 20. In the new covenant age of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 65 and verse 19, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it. What? No more weeping, the cry of distress. No more will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
For the young man will die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old will be accursed. I'm just telling you, when John uses this terminology in Revelation 21, he's hearkening back to all of these prophecies about how grand and glorious the new covenant age is going to be. And um, that's what I believe John's talking about. So let's go back to Revelation 21. Um, and let me say this before we move on to Revelation 21. I'll be ready. I should have said this earlier, but I'll say it now. I do believe in heaven. Everybody, let's get that down. Somebody says, how are you taking heaven away from me, man? I thought this. I do believe in heaven. Nobody's taking heaven away from you. In fact, I've read Revelation 21, 1 through 4 at funerals and will continue to do so. Don't think there's anything wrong with it. I do believe the passage is talking about the church triumphant, but it has some echoes of what eternal life's going to be. But if we're going to be honest with what John says in Revelation 21, he just never calls it heaven. He says he saw the church. And he's talking about things that happened in that first century era. So John's using prophetic language to describe the church's situation when her enemy has been put down. And then he says, the former things have passed away. The old order is removed, the new one's in place. And this first section just describes the new world that the church enjoys after God has dealt with her enemies. She's a bride prepared to meet her husband. God's dwelling place will be with his people. The removal of pain, persecution, and the passing away of former things. That's what you have in Revelation 21. Russell? It can be, I guess, if John says it's both, right? So, I mean, it's going to be repeated. What you're saying is, it's actually going to be repeated when Christ, when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns, the church will come down. Those the dead in Christ, they will be in heaven. I mean, coming down with them, right? Well, I don't know. First Thessalonians 4 does say the dead in Christ will rise and then we'll be caught up together to meet him in the air. So there's a sense in which we're going to meet Christ in the air and all of that. I'm just saying in Revelation 21 specifically, what John's saying is he's talking about the church. But yes, the things that John says in Revelation 21 will be true about heaven for sure. You won't die there. You won't cry there. All of that's true. But I just I think I think there are other passages that say that better than this passage right here. But Revelation 21, John's telling us, I see the church experiencing all of these things, and it's not in some distant future. It's right now. And the reason why I think this is important, and Russell, you said, could it be both? I think both have some shades that work together. And you might be thinking, well, why does it matter? Like, why do we got to get this figured out? Here's why I think it matters. Because if John is talking about the church, and I believe he is, post-persecution, then that means we should see our lives differently as the people of God right now. It does mean we're going to get all these things in the future, but if John's talking about the church after Roman persecution or any persecution that the church faces, we should be more hopeful and we should get our gaze up and think far more gloriously about the church right now, just like we think about heaven. And so that's why I think it matters, though I do think some of this will also be true about heaven. All right, any more questions before we go to verses 5 through 8? All right. Next, John gives words of encouragement and judgment. Revelation 21, verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God, and he'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they'll have their portion in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So John says he saw one sitting on the throne. Who is that in verse 5? Who's seated on the throne? 
Jesus, God, God seated on the throne, and he says, I'm making all things new. That is, I'm setting up this new arrangement for you. Why would it be important for Christians hearing this for the first time to appreciate that God's the one making all things new? Why do you think God tells them that in verse 5? I'm making everything new for you. A few years after Revelation's written, Domitian is going to be assassinated by some people in his own court. And the Christian circumstances are going to begin to change rapidly. I mean, Rome won't fall for a few centuries, but little by little, their circumstances are going to change. What they needed to remember, though, is it was God making all things new. This wasn't some political thing that it, it just so happens. It's just our luck. Our persecutor has died and all these things. God wants them to know I'm the engine behind all of this. I'm the one who's making all things new. Verse 6, he describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he also offers in verse 6, water for those who are thirsty. I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so Isaiah 55 and verse 1 talks about a time when God's people are going to, going to enjoy water from the water of life free of charge. This is God's way of saying he'll satisfy this people. Jesus says in John 7 and verse 37, I give the water of life to all of those who come and seek it. And there he's talking about the provisions of the Holy Spirit. But God's just saying, everybody who thirsts after me, everybody who comes to me, they will be satisfied. It won't cost you any money, just dedication and faithfulness. If you trust in him, you'll be provided for. The overcomers, he says in verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. And so the Christians there will ultimately enjoy sonship with God. God's everybody's father in the world, true or false? True. But there's a special sense in which God is the father of who? Christians. Christians. In a unique sense, we belong to God. And that's what John's saying in Revelation 21 and verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Everybody in the world has God as their father by virtue of the fact that they've been born. But in a unique sense, God is the father of Christians. And John says, hey, when you guys overcome this, You'll be my people, I'll be your God, I'll be your father. And then John mentions the fate of those who don't overcome. Look at verse 8. Notice what John says. But as this is probably one of the more famous verses in Revelation, right? The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all who? All liars. I only normally hear that last part quoted. All liars are going to the lake of what? Fire. It rhymes. So I guess it's easy to remember. But John mentions all of these people who didn't align with God, and they're going to have their end in the lake of fire. If you read that list in verse 8, it's interesting the sins that John picks out. He doesn't talk about every wicked thing that people have ever done. He's specifically picking out sins that people would have practiced who were flirting with the Roman Empire. Sorcery, emperor worship, idolatry, sexual immorality, all that stuff's in chapter 17. When the prostitute is lifted up and she's getting the nations drunk with her wrath, John's saying everybody who did that is going to the lake of fire. Everybody who did that is not going to enjoy this new world and new environment. When the Romans are done away with, they'll perish in that persecution too. And of course, everybody who does these things in verse 8, at any time, if we don't repent, what's going to be our end? The lake of fire. Yeah, the lake of fire. Hell, that's what will happen. All right, there are other places in the New Testament, we don't have time to look at all of them, where there are kind of these sinless, just like Revelation 21.8. There are other places where the New Testament says, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll go to torment, or you won't go to heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, there's a list where Paul says, the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. Thieves, covetous, extortioners, adulterers, or the works of the flesh. Galatians 5.19-21, Paul says, those that do these things can't inherit the kingdom of God. 
Why do you think these lists are mentioned so often in the New Testament? Why do you think the Holy Spirit saw fit to say, hey, by the way, just so you know, don't ever get confused. If you do these things, and then he'll provide some lists like in Ephesians 5 or these other passages, and will say, if you do these things, you'll go to the lake of fire, or you can't inherit the kingdom of God. Why do you think God does that a lot, or so often in the New Testament, those passages? He wants you to change your ways. He wants you to change your ways, for sure. Yeah, it's a deterrent. Don't do these things so you don't go there. What else? Why would God warn people repeatedly and even list out sin? I mean, adultery, fornication, sodomy, drunkenness, lying. Why list those sins and say, by the way, if you do these things, you can't go to heaven? Why do you think he wants you to change your ways? What else? Yeah, that's important, Holly, because sometimes people will say, well, this sin is in the Bible. I can do this one because God forgot to list this one, right? But in Galatians 5.21, Paul says, and everything else like this. So anybody doing anything like this, you'll also be condemned. And so everything goes back to those lists. Here's another reason why I think, too. I think both of those reasons are right. A deterrent, just in case you do anything like this. And I think God reminds us so often because so many people think their behavior has no, no correlation whatsoever to where they're going to spend eternity. Sometimes people think, I can live and do anything, and I'm sure I'll go to heaven. Me and God are on good terms. I mean, I'm not the best person in the world, but hey, it doesn't matter. And God wants to remind us repeatedly, if you live in such a way that's in opposition to me now, you will have to be on that side forevermore. And a lot of times in these lists, if you read all of them, Paul will say something like, don't be deceived. And that's the Holy Spirit, I believe, anticipating somebody coming along and telling you and me, don't worry about it, there's no big deal. God, God would get mad about that little thing. I mean, if you get drunk sometimes, God's not worried about that. Or if you curse sometimes or whatever, I believe these lists are there to remind us, do not be led astray. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. If you live in an ungodly way, you'll have an ungodly end. Not to say we can't repent or that we've got to be faultless, but if sin becomes our habit, if ungodliness and unrighteousness is our way of life, if we've spent our entire lives running in the opposite direction of God, we'll spend our eternity in that same direction. And so these lists, I think they're important. And in this midst of talking about all these blessings, John says it's not for everybody. Kathy? I'm kind of nervous to ask this question. Um, because I see what you're saying about the context and everything. But if this, like, the fire is talking about eternity, why couldn't the new heaven and the earth also be talking about eternity? Yeah, I think the lake of fire eventually does relate to eternity, but I think the lake of fire in the book of Revelation is specifically talking about the punishment of Rome. And so I don't think I would fast forward the lake of fire, even in the book of Revelation, to the end time of the fire. I think in the book, John's using fire to talk about the punishment of the Romans. If you go back, let's just look real quick. I think it's a good question. Go back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and notice verse 20. Revelation 19:20, John says, The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped this image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So John saw that happening in his time in the first century. They were thrown into this lake of fire. This language for punishment, and there are some other passages like Isaiah 34 and others that use similar terminology to talk about people being punished with fire 
but it's not always the final end time fire. And so I think that's how it's being used in Revelation. But again, and I, let me say this, we're kind of running out of time. If you come away from this study and you say, I don't care what you say, I'm Revelation 21 is about heaven. I'm fine with that. I love you. We can be brethren, okay? No big deal with me. If you just say, hey, you're not going to take heaven from me. Revelation 21, there might be some stuff about the church, but I think this is the end time heaven. That's fine. In the end, what John is saying is Christians are victorious. And if everything else in this book is coming to pass soon, I just believe the most natural reading, the easiest interpretation for people then, and they would receive the most hope right then and there to realize when your enemies are defeated and the way these other passages are used to describe similar things, that that's what John's talking about. But if you disagree, that's okay. All right? And that's just in general. We don't, don't worry about that. Revelation 21, 9 through 21. Notice what John says as he saw the New Jerusalem. Verse 9, and I'll just read all the way down through verse 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and his radiance was like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12 gates had angels and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three and on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square and its length the same as its width. He measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 <coughs> cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jason, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. All right, so that's what John says. Now, notice verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels. This is from chapter 16. One of the angels that showed him the seven bowls full of wrath. What does the angel promise to show John in verse 9? He says, come, I will show you what? The bride and the wife of the lamb. Whatever John sees after that is what the angel promised to show him. The angel promised to show John a bride. Now, you've got two options when you get to Revelation 21, 9. The angel had to show John exactly what he said. And if he didn't, then he misled John. He deceived John. After he says, I plan to show you the bride of the wife of the lamb, whatever we see is what he promised to show John. And I believe that's what you have in 10 through 21. John saw a bride and John also saw a city. Both of these are descriptions throughout the New Testament for the church. Why does John use both? Why does John say, I'm going to show you a bride? He says, I'm going to show you a bride. And then he shows John a city. What was that? Symbolic. Symbolic? What does the city represent? Security. Security and safety. And the bride represents this intimate fellowship that the people of God would enjoy with him. Look at verses 11 through 14 and just tell me what stands out to you. What do you see? Just list anything that you see in verse 11 down to verse 14. What do you see in those verses? It's going to be a high wall. Yes. What else? 
How many gates? Twelve. Whose names are on the gates? All right, the, the sons of Israel, and then what about 14? What else? The 12 name, the names of the 12 apostles, which are sometimes called the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul says the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And this image is just similar to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 48, 30 through 35. Remember what John sees about the church here is true about the church now. The church is this beautiful city that God sees post-persecution. And um, now that Rome's been removed, I believe, that's what John sees. She's safe, she's protected, she's of divine origin, and she's secure. In verse 15 down through verse 17, John says the city is measured. Um, this is a massive city. It's not a literal place. It's about 1,500 miles high based on the measurements that John gives here. This is not a literal city. So it would be about the distance from New York to Houston if you were trying to measure this out literally. John's just saying this place is expansive. There's enough room for everybody who wants to be a part of it. And then in the last place in 18 through 21, John mentions some jewels. And what do these jewels remind you of? Does anybody have any idea? John does not pick random stones. In 18 through 21, all of these jewels are the exact same ones that the high priest wore on his breastplate when he bore the people before God. In, in Exodus 28, 17 through 20, the high priest, Aaron and his sons, they wore an, a uniform with these exact same jewels. And now John is saying, Christians make up those same jewels as we bear God's image and as we bear God's kingdom out to the world around us. And that's what John sees. A few words on the church would be helpful here. The church is built and walked by Jesus. The church is not an afterthought in the mind of God. And we should view the church as beautifully as John describes it here. I think sometimes people, they criticize the church. They get down on the church. They think all sorts of things. But John sees the church as God's bride, as a beauty, as a, person, as a group of people that have come out of persecution, that are cleansed, and that are purified with him. And we need to see the church the same way. You can't be on non-speaking terms with the bride of Christ and be on good terms with Christ. You're in the church, you're a part of his family, or you're really not a part of it. All right, let's close out Revelation 21, and I'm going to do 22 through 27, and we'll do the hearing and keeping next week. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. His gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will, be, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All right, so John has talked about the city from the outside, the structure, and now he talks about what's inside. What's not in this city, based on verse 22? What's not here? There's no temple. Now, Old Testament Jerusalem had a temple in it. And what was the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament? That's where God did work. Holy place. God met with his people. Who was allowed to go into the holies of holies? Only the high priest and only when? One day of the year, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. Now, every Christian has that kind of access. Every Christian is indwelt by God, by God's spirit, and God lives in us all the time. So there's no temple here because the Lord God is the temple. He lives in his people day and night. John says there's no need for the sun and the moon. Why no need for the sun and the moon? No darkness. That's right. The light that's going to shine is going to be there. There's no need for darkness. 
Where does the city get its light from? From God. What does Jesus say about Christians? You are the what of the world? The light of the world. Rome's out of the way. Christians don't have to worry about persecution. In this city, there's no need for sun or moon. Metaphorically speaking, we will shine our light to the nations. Look at verse 24. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That's why this is another reason why I think it's talking about something that's still taking place. If this is the end of the world, what are the nations bringing and what about kings? I think John's saying once we get Rome out of the way, and by the way, once Rome died the way that it did, there's never been any kind of worldwide emperor worship like this ever again. And now the nations and everybody can bring their glory into the church, whoever wants to. They can be welcomed into it. Verse 25, look at what verse 25 says. Its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night there. I think this is saying for Christians, our light matters, but it's not just for ourselves. We have a responsibility to shine our light so that other people will be welcomed into this city too. John's saying God's done with the wicked, but anybody who still wants to be a part of this, there's no gates, there's plenty of points of entry. The city is big enough to fit as many people as want to come in. They can enter in. The nations now can bring their glory here. They realize Domitian's not a god. Emperor worship is a farce. They can come before God and worship him. And then in verse 27, he says, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Only those whose names are found written in the book of life. If you go back to Revelation 20 and verse 15, John already told you what happened to the wicked. They were cast into the lake of fire because their names weren't in the book of life. And now John says, nothing unclean will ever enter it. That is, the church is purified now and all of the corruption that was in opposition to her has been taken out of the way and only those written in the land of life. All right, there's like literally 60 seconds left. So let me close by saying this. I believe the Bible tells us a lot about heaven. And I believe a lot of what you find in Revelation 21 will also be true about heaven. Um, if you think it's still about heaven, that's fine. But just remember, after the persecution of Rome, John says these things are going to shortly come to pass. And one of the things that's going to shortly come to pass is the church is going to enjoy an exalted state. All of the opposition has fallen away, and now the church enjoys this glorious state of paradise and is victorious in the end. And everybody in the world is invited into that same thing. And that's still what we're doing today, inviting everybody in the world to enjoy the same blessings that we do on the cross. Thanks for a good Bible class. Thanks for your comments and questions. And if there are any questions that linger after, we can discuss them, and that'd be fine. But thanks for participating. Uh, 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 u